Well, let me please invite you, if you have a Bible, to have it open at chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Judges. The last five chapters of Judges, in many ways, are a complete departure from the format that we've become used to as we've been studying this book. One commentator likens it to having been walking along a very smooth footpath and then it suddenly turns to gravel and you immediately notice the difference. It's a very different feel and experience on the gravel. And, well, these final chapters in the book of Judges are a little bit like that. Uh, there will be no more Judges of Israel mentioned now. What we actually have here is something more along the lines of an appendix at the back of the book. And what the writer does is provide some examples of what was actually going on in Israel during the time of the Judges. Some practical examples, if you will, of the breakdown of the religious and moral life of Israel. Uh, I've mentioned Dale Ralph Davis a few times and his commentary on the book of Judges. And he puts it like this. Here is Israel wallowing in her own religious and moral mess. Here the problem is not the enemy without but the cancer within. And because human nature is so consistently fallible and prone to sin, these verses act as a real and very helpful warning for us. If these final chapters were a road sign, they would be a red triangle with the word danger underneath. And I want to do three things with you this morning in consideration of chapters 17 and 18. I want to draw your attention to just two verses for my first two points, and then consider the story that's presented to us across these two chapters and draw out some lessons from them in the third and final section of this message. So first of all, uh, we're going to look at just one verse and it's in chapter 17 and it's verse six. And what we are confronted with in Israel is a people with no corrective leadership. So, verse 6 of chapter 17 begins with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Now, at this point in Israel's history, they've never had a king. But what the writer is wanting us to see is that Israel is lacking any kind of steady, corrective leadership. And so they keep uh, ebbing and flowing between these two positions of falling into sin and then being rescued by a judge and then falling into sin and being rescued by a judge. Uh, there's no consistent, corrective leadership amongst the people. If you go to the Old Testament and find a period in Israel's history when the nation is in good condition spiritually, I guarantee it will be at a time when they were under some form of godly leadership, be it a prophet, be it a priest, or be it a king. Now having said that, godly leadership of course doesn't guarantee spiritual health in the nation. If you read Jeremiah, and there's the prophet of God being completely ignored for 40 years. There was no lack of spiritual leadership from Jeremiah. 
Actually, he wasn't ignored. He was utterly despised and mistreated and rejected by the people of Israel. There he was as God's mouthpiece to his people and they want nothing to do with him. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And that's with Christ in their midst. The ultimate prophet, priest and king amongst his own people. There needs to be willing within the people, willing to hear God's voice and to heed those through whom God is speaking. And so there's no guarantee that even the finest spiritual leadership will result in spiritual health amongst God's people. But wherever there is spiritual health, you'll discover that good leadership has always played a part. And this links to what we were thinking about on Wednesday evening in the Proverbs regarding our attitude towards instruction and rebuke and correction. It links to Paul's instruction to Titus on the island of Crete that the thing which is lacking there be put in every place amongst the churches. And what is that? Well, elders for every church, because one of the chief role of elders is to provide spiritual corrective in and for the church. Paul speaks of elders ruling the church and being over the church. And again, in line with what we considered on Wednesday, the means that they have in doing that is by teaching and preaching the word of God. It's actually the word of God which is the corrective, but it comes from the mouth of teachers and preachers. This is Christ's pattern for his church. Many churches wander off course because they lack the necessary corrective leadership amongst them. And so picture the pilot sitting at the controls of the aeroplane. He is constantly making minor adjustments to the control surfaces on the wings and on the tailplane in order to keep that aircraft flying straight and level and on course. There are all kinds of things that he has to keep adjusting against. Changes in air pressure, wind direction, all need to be taken into account. As it burns off fuel, the centre of gravity of the aircraft changes. That needs to be adjusted for. The amount of lift that the wings generates increases or decreases as the speed of the aircraft rises and falls. Sometimes major adjustments need to be made through the control column in his hands or the rudder pedals at his feet. Sometimes just very small changes are needed. And to do that, they have what they call little tiny trim tabs on the wings, operated by turning a little wheel at the side of the pilot. And that just gives fine tuning to the control surfaces which are, are keeping the aircraft steady. On modern aircraft, of course, you won't be surprised to hear that some of this is all done automatically by computer. But however it's done, the whole thing is being constantly checked and monitored and adjusted. What would the result be of not having that corrective taking place? Well, it would be catastrophe. 
And spiritually, that's what happens if you have a look at the second half of verse 6. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes because they lack this spiritual corrective within the nation. Again, that takes us back to our study once more from Wednesday in the Proverbs. This is how the Bible all fits together so well. Because of sinful pride, our judgment can be severely lacking. Without that corrective leadership, then we can quickly go astray. My estimation of my wisdom is significantly overinflated because of the pride of my own heart. My tendency to be drawn towards that which is personal preference rather than obedience to revealed objective truth, that's far stronger than I would ever care to admit. My proud heart can convince me that my being sincere that God won't mind if I choose to do things a different way. Well, I kid myself if I think that being sincere will allow God to wink or turn a, turn a blind eye when I go against what he has prescribed in his word. And with no spiritual corrective to a whole group of people who think and feel that way, well, in no time at all, Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Some might even say, but I've prayed about it and, and I'm at peace over it, over some decision they've taken or a conclusion they've drawn. So, you've prayed that God will give you a sense of peace, but you've done so over disobeying or disregarding his revealed word. Do you really think that peace in that situation has come from God? Do you really think that God would be okay with that? Corrective leadership amongst the Lord's people is vital. Stops us making those kinds of errors. Which is why within his pattern for the church, such leadership is provided. Um, which is why those who step outside of that biblical model of church life are in peril. There's no one to correct them. And usually, of course, they would deny that they need to be corrected. There's an interesting verb in the, uh, verse in the Proverbs, which is one of the most misunderstood and misquoted verses in the Bible. It begins with these words, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, actually, that isn't the whole of the verse, but that's usually the only bit that gets quoted. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And so from that verse, you'll often hear people um, asking questions like this. What is the elder's vision for the church? Where do you see us being in 10 years time? Well, as a church elder, I would say that everything that I want for Belvedere Road Church and where we should be, all of that may be found on the page of Scripture. And if it's not on the page of Scripture, I don't want it. You'll find lots of people all over the place speaking of churches needing to move forward 
It's a very common phrase. Moving the church forward. Here's a challenge for you if you fancy taking it up. Um, come back to me with a biblical definition and some biblical examples of churches moving forward. Moving forward biblically. What does that mean? What does it look like? Where there is no vision, the people perish. I'd like to encourage you to just look that verse up. It's Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Have a look at it in your own Bible. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And if you've looked it up, what you'll have discovered is that unless you're using a translation of the Bible, such as the King James Authorised Version or the American Standard Version, that's actually not what that verse says in your Bible, is it? In our New King James Version, it reads, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. It says the same thing in the NIV. In the, in the ESV, it uses the word vision, but before it, it puts the word prophetic. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. So it's not that the people are going to perish uh, for lack of vision, but they themselves, the people themselves, are going to do something. The word vision, which some translations do use, does not mean how you envisage something, how you picture something, how you imagine something. So we, in the, context, in the context of church, might say, how do you envisage the church being in the future? Where do you envisage the church going? What is your grand scheme and plan for the church which you have imagined for us? Well, there's a huge clue in the second half of the verse as to how this actually ought to be understood. And it's interesting that this second half of the verse is usually not quoted. The whole verse reads like this. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. Now we've seen in our Wednesday studies how the book of Proverbs contrasts between two opposing positions in single verses. By vision or revelation, the writer is talking about the, re the revealing of and the making known God's truth. Without that, the people cast off restraint. They'll become disobedient. They'll do that which is right in their own eyes. What is the contrast? Happy is he who keeps the law. So where there is no revelation, where there is no revealing of God's word, where there is no revealing of God's will, the people will cast off restraint. Those who are happy are those who keep the law, who keep that which God has revealed. 
Proverbs 29.18, contrary to how many people want to use it, is actually just a different way of saying, without a king, the people will do what's right in their own eyes. It's actually talking about the same thing. If you want to be a happy Christian, you need to keep the law of God. If we want to be a happy church, we need to keep the law of God. And elders are appointed in churches to help us to do that. Not to see some grand vision, but to bring to the people the corrective revelation of the word of God. So that they don't cast off that restraint. So that they are happy in keeping the law. That's why, that's why elders are appointed in churches in order that they might do that. That's why there's so much wisdom in having plurality of elders within churches. Without corrective leadership, the Lord's people are doomed. That's exactly what happened in Old Testament Israel. And it will happen in churches if it's absent there. The second point we see from these chapters we're going to go to the very last verse of chapter 18. And here's the point. Knowing what worship should be, but doing your own thing anyway. Few verses in the Bible are more tragic than verse 31 of Judges chapter 18. We're told there that at Shiloh may be found the tabernacle as prescribed by God for his rightful worship. The people may go there and worship him as he has said he must be worshipped. And they can find that there in the tabernacle, in that place, they are the most blessed, the most privileged people in the whole world. If only they would go there, theirs could be the testimony that we hear so frequently from the lips of David in the Psalms. As for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. And so forth. But not this people. In the time of the judges. The people think they know better. Even if they think that by means of carved images, they are in some bizarre way still worshipping the God of Israel. They've taken themselves down a path which has led them far away from the path of true worship. In the Bible, the true worship of God has been laid down for us. It's been prescribed for us. 
when we get to the New Testament, what do we, what do we discover there in terms of worship? The simple singing of God's praise, prayer, the reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word, the Lord's table, which keeps Christ central to it all. That's it. The moment that you decide that you think you can improve upon that, that you can make it better, that you can make it seem more appealing, that you can make it sound and feel more exciting. But what if this? But couldn't we add that? But why don't we include, I'd prefer it if. You see, the worship of God is not a small thing that you're wanting to tinker with. You don't tinker with the worship of the Almighty God, who is maker of heaven and earth. Standing before him, you don't begin to consider for one moment what you think could make it a better experience for you. Excuse me? The only thing that matters is what does he require of me? Do you remember that time when Isaiah was given a, uh, given a vision by God? Uh, by vision, I mean revelation directly from God to Isaiah. It's in chapter 6 of his prophecy. Now, God decided what it was that Isaiah would see. God decided what Isaiah's experience of God would be. Isaiah wasn't left to decide for himself or make it up for himself or imagine it for himself. God gave it to him. Can you imagine for one moment Isaiah standing there and raising his, his hand to God? Uh, uh, excuse me, Lord, I'm sorry, but this isn't quite how I imagined it to be. I'm sorry, but this really isn't doing anything for me. Would you mind if we just... Isaiah was far too busy burying his face in the ground for fear of the holiness of God. How dare I presume to tailor the worship of God to that which I think is better for me. Who do I think I am as I stand before him to think that way? Who do I think I am to suppose that I know better than he as to how he is to be worshipped? Look at Israel. They end up with their own form of worship in their own place of worship while that which God has given them lies empty and silent as God waits. That's where it leads you, you see. Dear friends, be careful what you wish for when it comes to the things of God. 
And another area which shows why we need corrective leadership in the church is what comes next. Where in these two chapters we have pictures of godless living. Pictures of godless living. And so we conclude this morning with this third point by considering this diff- some of the different scenes which are presented to us in these two chapters. And we'll note some further lessons and applications for ourselves. Here are some pictures of the spiritual condition that Israel was in and how that manifested itself. Much of the story revolves around this man, Micah. That's not Micah the prophet, he comes later. We don't know much more about this man, but he's introduced to us as a man who's stolen 1,100 shekels of silver from his mother. Then he, he hears her put a curse on the money so that it brings ill will to whoever's taken it. So he owns up and gives the money back. It's not because he's sorry he took it. He just doesn't want it to bring him any misfortune. He's got a choice. Bad fortune with the money or good fortune without it. That's the only way he can think of it. His mother tells him what a good boy he is for giving the money back. But she doesn't bother to provide any kind of reprimand for the fact that he took it in the first place. She says it's all for the Lord and then promptly gives just 200 shekels to the silversmith so that he can make an idol for worship and she keeps 900 back for herself. What what is being presented to us in this story of what was going on behind the scenes in Israel is that all moral and spiritual compass has been lost in Israel. This is how the people are thinking and behaving and preparing to worship. Not only are they doing what's right in their own eyes, but because of that, they're they're basically making things up as they go along. And yet Micah's mother is doing all of this under the pretense of worshipping God. Well, this links back to what I've just said about worship, but then develops it further. This is not just the revision of how God is worshipped. This is actually the revision of who God is. This woman is reshaping and redefining God to suit herself, to suit her own foibles and inclinations. Here is a very grave area of danger being presented to us in God's word. Of course I believe in God, she says, but not in a God who's exactly like that. Not in a God who includes this. Not in a God who requires this of me. Not in a God who insists that I deny that. Not not in a God who insists on this way and who won't allow me to go that way. That's not the God that I want. That's not the God that I'm prepared to worship. Now for you and I today, well, we may not have fashioned an idol with our hands. But are we guilty? Are you guilty of refashioning reshaping God in your mind, which is just as sinful. Micah has set up a shrine in his home. I I prefer to worship God like this, you see. Oh, really? 
he makes one of his own sons into a priest. Well, you can, can't you? But then the son gets swapped for a proper Levite. Uh, the Levites were the family from whom all of Israel's priests were descended. And it seems that he's been convinced to work for Micah sim simply because Micah offers him a decent financial package. The problem is, of course, that any Levite worth his salt would be found in the house of the Lord back in Shiloh, doing what he's supposed to do, worshipping the, the God the way God has said he's supposed to be worshipped, not helping Micah worship idols in a homemade temple. Micah thinks that having a proper, proper Levite in place means that God will conveniently overlook all of his idolatry. Have you ever tried to sweep sin under the carpet and present one redeeming feature, thinking that that makes everything okay before God? What an unholy mess Israel is in. You see, the whole problem is that they're, they're, they think that it's okay to, to reshape and remould and refashion who God is and how he can be worshipped. Worshipping God your way, on your terms, for your purposes, because it feels good to you to do it like that. Micah's conclusion, now I know God will be good to me. How can he not be? I've got my priest here. All of this is the very behaviour which was causing God's anger to burn hot against Israel in the Judges. Here's how one commentator helpfully puts it. The faith of God's people is a revealed faith. God reveals himself in his word. We do not discover him through our reason or experience. God says, worship me as I am not as you want me to be. Worship me as my heart has directed you, not as your heart suggests to you. We're all really prone to this, you know. We need to be so careful. False religion wants a God that will serve me. The gospel changes us so that we serve the Lord. In chapter 18, the spotlight falls upon one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Dan. And they have yet to take possession of their allotted land in Canaan. And that's because of their own disobedience. They send out five men, five men of valour, to try and find a good place where they can settle. And as they're doing that, they stumble across Micah's house. And what do you know? They know the Levite whom Micah has employed. And convinced by him and his pagan shrine that all is well, and having found a place that they think will be a pushover to conquer and to take the land for themselves, they return home and convince the people of Dan that God must be in all of this. Look at God's providence towards us with the Levite and everything. 
just how mistaken we can be at what we perceive as the providence of God. But if we're not being properly directed and instructed by God's word, we can so easily misconstrue everything, read into things that which we should never read. Um, on, a ba on the basis of this, a force of 600 set off to take possession of their new home. Even though they already had an allotted place for them in Israel, which they would have been in by now, had they been obedient. They've conveniently forgotten that. On their way, they're tipped off by the five spies about Micah's house and they help themselves to all of the items out of Micah's shrine. And when Micah's Levite priest confronts them about it, they simply say to him, well, come with us, join us. You'll be the priest over a whole tribe, not just a household. Well, bigger has to be better in God's kingdom, right? Anything for a bigger church, surely. All this, all this kind of thinking, we have to be so careful of. And Micah gets burgled and abandoned by fellow Israelites. And despite his best efforts, he's unable to resist them. And the people of Dan, confident that all is well. They, they even have a descendant of Moses serving as a priest. Um, most Hebrew scholars are convinced that translating the Hebrew into Manasseh is actually a mistranslation. It should actually read Moses. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? These chapters present us with what's been going on behind the scenes in Israel as we've been studying through the book of Judges so far. And what we discover is that it's a messy story of a messy people who are messing with God. It's a grim story of disobedient people who are playing fast and loose with God. It's a shocking story of idolatrous people who are messing with a jealous and holy God. Let it not be your story. Let it not be our story. That's what we are to take from these passages. All of Micah's religion has been taken from him. Because it can be. Because all of Micah's, Micah's religion has been things of his own invention created out of the things of this world. And that's why the anger of God is burning hot against Israel. Of course, we know that in Christ, that which we have in him is not of this world. None of it is. None of it ever can be. Everything that we have of Christ now, we will have in glory with him. As we're presented with this picture of Israel, we wonder, don't we, how can people who think they are so right, how can they actually be so wrong and not know it? Do you suppose that can happen in a church? Well, 
If we don't heed these kinds of lessons in the Bible, it can. If we fail to realise that all of us need that spiritual corrective, that corrective leadership to help keep us on the right path, it can happen in churches. Whenever we start to reshape God in our own minds, whenever we begin to think that it's okay for us to decide for ourselves how he is to be worshipped, well, all of these things can happen even in a local church. This is the Old Testament equivalent of not abiding in Christ, of not taking up our cross to follow him, of not loving him and keeping his commandments. This is the Old Testament version of that, of not having the mind of Christ and of being of one mind together in the things of God. Realising that we cannot improve the gospel. We cannot improve upon God's revelation of himself. Uh, None of what it means to be a Christian or to be a member in a local church None of it is open to modification or the adding of your own personal touch or accommodating particular sensibilities. Wholehearted submission and devotion is required and nothing less. To be so taken up with Christ and his worship and his proclamation as it's revealed to us in his word. His call upon me to deny myself, to forsake all and to follow him on his terms, in his way, for his sake, to his glory. Let that be our testimony. Let that be the thing that marks us out in this world. Let that be the thing to which we give ourselves, keep ourselves, guide and guard ourselves to the glory of our God and Saviour.